right, welcome back to another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Jason. And this is Allie. This week we will be talking about global surgery, about how to get involved as a resident, and talking with one of our residents, Yihan Lin, as an example of how you can guide your research time to set you up for some success in this field. And then we'll also be talking with Dr. David Kuyama, who is a vascular surgeon here, who spends about two months every year deployed on an MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, mission. But before we jump into that, Jason, what fun things did you do this week? So we took advantage of probably one of the last warm-ish weekends in Denver, and so we actually drove down to Colorado Springs, and the Garden of the Gods is down there. We've never been to that, and what the Garden of the Gods is, is very large uh, naturally created rock sculptures, essentially. So very interesting geographic formations. There's lots of hiking trails down there. There's also some dirt roads that you can bike on, and that's what we did. We took our bikes up there, and it was a great time. Got some more great workout in, got some fresh air, got into the countryside, and enjoyed ourselves. And then we came back and, and went over to one of our friend's house for a secret Santa. Bobby Torfey hosted us for a secret Santa, and you got me a NPR nerd t-shirt, which I'm very fond of now. Have you posted that to Twitter yet? It's not on Twitter. It's on Instagram. We'll be sure to do that yeah. for our avid listeners. Very what, good. What about you, Allie? Also doing some fun holiday stuff. My husband and I got a Christmas tree, and we decorated it and put all the fragile stuff at the top so our giant dog does not get to anything that's on the bottom. And then we've also been you know, celebrating Hanukkah, because we do both. And, you know, just the normal mm -hmm. kind of things. I joined Pure Bar since I just had a major birthday. I won't tell you which one it is, but now that I'm getting old and fat, I'm going to start working out since I'm a research resident. I, I think you're going to need to put a picture of Moose on Twitter so people realize how large this big dog is. Will do. All right, so jumping into our episode, we'll first hear from Dr. Yi Han Lin, who's currently a clinical fourth-year resident, but PGY-6 who spent some time doing research within the global surgery field. She did an MPH at Harvard within the Paul Farmer, I don't know, division or the Paul Farmer Global Health Fellowship, I should say. So she's got some great thoughts and let's hear from her. This is Jason and Allie here with Dr. Yihan Lin, one of our fourth-year residents at University of Colorado General Surgery Program. Yihan is here to chat with us about global surgery opportunities as a surgical resident. Global surgery has been an interest of hers for quite some time. So, Yihan, thanks for joining us today. Great. Happy to be here. So, to start off, Yihan, how did you get involved in global surgery? So, I think global surgery has been a, or global health has been a passion of mine for a long time, and um, it was very important for me to be able to merge global health with the surgical field. And so I was very lucky to be able to um, spend my research time with the Paul Farmer Global Surgery Fellowship, which is out of Harvard Medical School for the past two years. And I think there are many other opportunities out there for all of the medical students and residents that are interested in this field. Well, Yihan, we're definitely going to ask you about all of your experience during your research time when you got your master's in public health through the Paul Farmer Fellowship. But a question I have is, like, how did you get interested in this 
in terms of either during medical school or even before medical school? Did you have experiences that kind of funneled you in this direction? Yeah, so I actually grew up in Asia and so, uh, you know, came to the U.S. for school and med school and residency. And so I've always had this, um, you know, I, I guess, interest and in, in want to really work in developing settings and, uh, you know, had many opportunities pre-college, during college, and also during medical school to just do some short-term trips, whether they were medical-related or not. And I think through getting into residency, I uh, really wanted to develop this further into something that was more sustainable as opposed to just sort of short-term missions. And so that's why I think it was important for me to dedicate substantial time to this as a resident during my research years. So first off, congratulations are in order. Uh, you were awarded the Surgical Resident Volunteerism Award at the Clinical Congress of the American College of Surgeons this year. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Very Can well you, deserved. Absolutely. Can you describe your project and how it came about? Yeah. So um, the way that I spent my two years of, of research was, you know, I, I really thought about what was important to me and also what skills I really needed in order to be effective in the future. And I think, you know, first of all, I, I didn't want to spend two years in the lab, you know, doing pipetting and lab work. And I knew that I wanted to do something global health related. But I also had very little experience as a public health professional. And um, so for me, it was important to, to, to be able to do what I do well. And so the first thing I did was I signed up to be at the um, School of Public Health and get an MPH at the Harvard School of Public Health. And then after that, you know, it was also really important for me to get on the ground experience. And so I was lucky enough to join the Paul Farmer Global Surgery Fellowship. And uh, I actually wanted to spend the majority of my time in Rwanda. And that's actually uh, what I did for over a year. And, uh, you know, did a lot of clinical work, but also did a lot of uh, research and education and local education research capacity building. But, you know, also during my time there, had some experiences that, that made me feel uh, that, you know, I really needed to, to branch out from, from just uh, doing sort of work on the ground. So because of that, I decided to actually also focus my time on more advocacy and public health and infrastructure development. And so I also spent some time at the World Health Organization in Geneva working on an international level to convince governments and agencies that surgery is is a part of primary health care and a part of global public health, and it's cost-effective. Uh, you know, basic surgery is, is definitely cost-effective. It saves lives. It promotes economic growth. Um, and so, you know, also then taking this to the national level, I worked in with many of my colleagues um, uh, in Zambia and Rwanda with the Ministry of Health there to develop national surgical plans, which basically prioritizes surgery as a part of the national health plan and brings it to the majority uh, of the population, as opposed to traditionally where it's only available, you know, mostly in city centers and the major hospitals. I mean, that's truly incredible. Describing how you went to Geneva and advocated for these these important projects is, is truly remarkable. When I was learning about this project, my understanding is there was a lot of teaching involved as part of improving the sustainability of this, where you would actually educate researchers in Rwanda about the, the basic aspects of research. Is that correct? That was a big part of it? Yeah, there's, um, and, um, you know, the, the people that developed this program are at, at Harvard at, with Partners in Health, and it's called the Operational Research Training Program. 
and and basically actually it's it's um adapted from an msf uh, project where you take someone from the very beginning of a research process to the very end you know how do you come up with a research question how do you collect the data and then when you have the data how do you analyze it what program you use all the way to manuscript writing and you know it's 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 very very time intensive it's not something where you can just give a lecture to a bunch of people and suddenly they're they're going to be able to come up with a project. So, um, you know, this happened over the course of one year, and I worked with a total of six healthcare providers very intensively over the year. And I'm really happy to say that actually all of them were able to publish their very first research papers, and not only that, but be first author on their research papers. So I think that's another thing about global surgery is is not not just doing your own research, but really how do you uh, share your skills and and help others also grow and, and learn. Now, Ihan, it's my understanding that you plan to pursue further training in cardiothoracic surgery. Mm -hmm. Now, I see that as something that's very resource intensive mm -hmm. and can, based on my personal experience, I could see it being very difficult to start something like that in a lower middle income country that's still struggling with things like laparoscopy, yeah. for example. So how do you see your future in that field and global surgery. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, that's probably the number one question I get when I tell people I want to do cardiothoracic. That just completely blows their mind. But, you know, I think um, ultimately, I think that you have to do what you love and you can only be good at what you do and you can only sustain your interest and your passion if you actually love what you're doing. You know, for a long time, I considered doing other specialties that were perhaps more congruent with global surgery. They're actually, now I have so many of my trauma colleagues that are able to work 30, 60, 90, 100% in LMICs. And it's sort of very new, but but uh, all, all of our dreams to be able to do that. And for a while I thought, well, maybe I'll do trauma surgery so that I can do more global health. And then I realized that that was not the way to go. You know, one of my colleagues who actually loves trauma and global surgery said, let us take care of the trauma that we love. You go do your cardiac. Yeah. And I think he's right. And so ultimately global surgery is, is about equality. And, and if you, if you truly feel like everybody deserves cardiac surgery, then that's what I'm going to strive for. And I think the other thing is that the global surgery world is changing rapidly. When I was a medical student, I went to the very first ASAP meeting, which is a surgery anesthesia global surgery conference. And at that time, the, even the thought of, of surgery and global health was so novel and so interesting and, and so new. But as I've continued into my medical school career and, and, and residency, now we have the Lancet Global Commission on Global Surgery that clearly shows it's cost effective. And so we're transitioning from surgery silly, immunizations are what's important, or clean water. And now we're sort of switching to a different perspective of, oh, actually, surgery is important. And so I think as we all embark on our careers and our, spe our specialties, all these things will eventually need to be addressed. And certainly I'm not going to put resources into a place that's not ready for it, for cardiac surgery, but I think everyone eventually will get there. And so if we all do what we love, I think hopefully we'll all make the world a fairer place. Now, it's my understanding also that you've participated in some global cardiac surgery in a place, as I think you would say, is ready for it. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience? We actually had Dr. Bowman who helped start. Is it Team Heart? Team Heart. Yeah. 
Yes, in Rwanda. Um, the, the Dr. Bowman works in Rwanda with Team Heart. And let me stop you for a second. So, Dr. Bowman is a cardiac surgeon who was previously in Minnesota, the Brigham, and Vermont. After he retired from his academic career, he helped start this project, or excuse me, Team Heart program. Uh, well, actually, while he was clinically very active at the Brigham, mm -hmm. is when he started and, and has brought many um, teams of surgeons. I think. You know, he and his wife have been doing this for over a decade. And even in Rwanda, a place where perhaps, so there, there are not a lot of cardiothoracic surgeons in the surrounding areas, but rheumatic heart disease is a huge problem. And you know, they're, they're just, uh, the, the burden of, of disease is, is much more than in the developed country. And so there are just tons of young children and young adults who really need surgery in, in order to, to do well. And so, yeah, the way that I saw cardiac surgery there, it's, it's also pretty amazing. One of the things that the nurses told me is that we used to see patients with this, these diseases and they would die. And to be able to see a surgeon come in and fix a heart is something that we never imagined possible in our setting. And that's so inspiring because we know we can do it and we know we can do better and we know we can strive for more. So I think they're actually working on building a, a cardiac hospital for the region. I mm -hmm. hope that they're successful. I would love to join and participate, and I hope Colorado does as well. And I think these are a bunch of dedicated people who have been doing this for over a decade, and so clearly not doing it just for fun. And so uh, I hope that they're successful, and they're, they've gotten the Ministry of Health uh, of Rwanda on board with the project as well, so it's really great. One of the things that I get asked by med students and residents is, you know, how, how does this move forward? And I think there's so many different ways to do global surgery. And to be honest, not everyone has to do it the same way. For example, my mentor, Dr. Robert Riviello at, at the Brigham, he had spent nine months out of the year in Rwanda and three months at Brigham. And that's how he's been doing his global health career. And Dr. Kuyama, for example, is more focused on disaster settings, and that's where he feels like he's the best. Best, his he he's like the most useful. And so he spends a month a year working with MSF. And I think there are just so many different models, but um, all of them sort of. It doesn't really matter how you do it. It just matters that you do it. I guess you have to be dedicated, and um, it's. it's for all of them, that this is not just a one-time sort of deal. Excellent. Well, Yihan, thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Now, Ali, you also have had an interest in global surgery and had some experiences, and you've actually talked somewhat about those experiences on the podcast, but what what experiences have you had with global surgery yourself, and what is having the opportunities to take part in global surgery practices? What does that mean to you? Well, when I was a medical student between my first and second year in that first summer, I applied for a fellowship at UNC where a first-year medical student goes abroad. This was to Malawi, a country in sub-Saharan, southeastern Africa. Uh, with a trauma surgeon and with an ENT surgeon at the time who were developing a residency program within Malawi. And I went, and there was also an undergraduate student interested in medicine who went as well. And so 
my job was certainly to learn, but then it also kind of sets up this nice mentorship situation where I mentored this undergrad who ended up joining the medical school class below me and ended up going into surgery and is currently a PGY2 surgery resident, which is very exciting. So we went and the experiences that I had that summer basically made me want to be a surgeon because I saw how broad-based the training was, how they were the ones who, when everything hit the fan, they were the ones who knew what to do. And I wanted to be that person. And I think that's true in the United States and it's true abroad as well. And we'll talk kind of about what that means to be a general surgeon abroad with Dr. Kuyama. But Yes, that was an experience I had, and it changed my worldview so much and my desires to be a doctor and to be a surgeon 100%. All right, well, let's listen to Dr. Kuyama's interview now about his experiences with global surgery. I think it's one of the best interviews that we've done on the podcast to date, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Mountain Surgery. We have Dr. David Kuyama with us, who is one of the vascular surgeons here at the University of Colorado. We thank him for being with us today for this global health episode. Just as a brief introduction, Dr. Kuyama, I understand that you got your medical degree from Harvard and then trained in your surgery residency at Hopkins. Now, sometime along the way, I'm assuming that when you're in residency, you got a master's in public affairs. Is that right? I did. I took my years off for research, and but I, I didn't really do much research. I uh, spent a year working in Haiti with Partners in Health, and then I spent two years at Princeton getting, a, getting that MPA degree. So this global health, global surgery focus obviously started sometime before your being in attending. Yeah, that's fair to say. I think I was interested in global health probably before I was interested in becoming a doctor. Really? Yeah sort of prompted me to go down the medical school path. Did you have experiences prior to medical school where you worked in either developing countries or in the healthcare field? I didn't really have much as far as developing world experiences before medicine. I did spend, I actually have another master's degree you didn't mention because I don't really list it very often, but I lived in Ireland for a year and studied medieval history. So that was about the extent of my sort of international travels before medicine. But uh, I think, you know, going back to like my high school, mm-hmm. when I was, you know, a kid, and as a teenager, I went to a Jesuit high school. It was an all boys school, mm-hmm. which might be part of why I'm as screwed up as I am right now. <laughs> but uh, no, in, in all seriousness, I mean, I thought it was a great experience going to um, that school. And a lot of my teachers were... Jesuit priests who had returned from missions in Africa. And so mm. it was kind of a very formative time in, in my life. Was there a big focus on service at the school? There was a big focus on service. This was back in the early 90s. And you might recall this is around the time when like the Rwandan genocide happened. And when the, like, the Serbian wars broke mm-hmm. out between Croatia and Serbia and Yugoslavia was falling apart. And it was a very... You know, it was a very tenuous time. And, you know, being in that era mm-hmm. and having having teachers that wanted you to read the newspaper every day 
that wanted you to focus on international pages and think about the broader world as really formative for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's probably when I started, you know, thinking that I wanted to have a a career one day that took me abroad that wasn't just having to read about the news, but you know, getting to be part of it, getting to go to places that are in the news. So my dad was a doctor, and what medicine kind? was kind. Of, he was a pediatric allergist. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah it's a little different from what you do. Yeah, he was an immunologist, kind of brain guy, and uh, you know, he always wanted me to go into medicine. I, I wasn't necessarily all that enthused about it up front. Uh, hence, you know, studying medieval history and. I dabbled in archaeology and, you know, studied comparative literature in college and all these kinds of other things I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I thought maybe I'd be a journalist, be like hmm. a foreign correspondent or something. And actually, after I graduated from college, I was a criminal investigator for a while. And I thought maybe I, you know, would do something in the legal system. And, yeah, then I, it just sort of seemed... Well, I will say I was inspired by Doctors Without Borders since I was you know, quite young, and I guess it was a it was a good fallback option. You know, it was a good path forward to integrate doing something important that I could do, you know, here in the United States and have a full time job, but also sort of incorporate that into you know time abroad, making a difference in the broader world. So that was in the back of your mind, even applying to medical school. Yeah, for sure. No, I. I I, I literally went to medical school in order to work with Doctors Without Borders. And then I, I, I chose surgery as a career path you know, very early on because I felt like that was the most direct way to make the biggest impact. You know, mm-hmm. It seemed to me, and this may or may not be true, but it seemed like there was a plethora of medical doctors that were willing to go abroad. People who are infectious disease doctors, pediatricians, that seemed to be willing to join the global workforce. But surgeons didn't seem, and I think this has changed a lot in mm-hmm. recent years, but when I was younger, it seemed like surgeons were kind of lagging as far as being willing to, you know, to work abroad. Mm-hmm. So, so it was, it, I, I literally was kind of picking my career path and trying to figure out how I could make the biggest difference now, how does vascular surgery fit into that? So you yeah, do your doesn't. training, <laughs> and you're at Hopkins, and yeah. in the middle of that, yeah. you get your master's in public affairs, and you spend time with partners in health, Yeah. and then you decide, ultimately, to get further training in vascular surgery. Right. Yeah, it was a last-minute decision. So pretty much from day one, I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. Hmm. Um, because of the broad-based nature mm-hmm. and the yeah. applicability. Yeah, I, I, and I thought, you know, I, I thought, well, what do you need in a war zone? Mm-hmm. You probably need experience of trauma surgery, right? You got bullet wounds coming in. So I thought trauma surgery would be a, you know, a natural sort of career path to have in the United States that would also work with MSF. And then, you know, and I think it would. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, that would be an, a natural fit. When I was on the trauma service at Hopkins, it's called the Halstead Service. Mm-hmm. The best trauma surgeon that was taking call 
was actually a vascular surgeon named Glenn Roseboro. Guy was amazing. Hmm. I mean, people would come in, you know, three, four bullet wounds to the abdomen and no fear. You know, he had no fear of whether it was, you know, bowel injury, pancreatic injury, liver injury, because his ability to control bleeding was, you know, unparalleled compared to the other trauma surgeons. He just didn't have that natural fear that we all have of bleeding. Hmm. And that really kind of inspired me. It sort of got me thinking, well, you know, here's a guy who trained in general surgery mm-hmm. and then got extra training in vascular injuries, and it's made him a better general surgeon. So that was kind of why I decided on vascular at the last minute. Plus, you know, I, I wanted to be operating all the time, all mm-hmm. the time. And I, I mean, if you're at a busy trauma center, you'll be operating all the time as well. But it just seemed to me like a more reliable way to be in the OR four days a week. So you finish your training in vascular surgery, and then you're looking for your first job after fellowship. Mm-hmm. Knowing that you wanted MSF to be a part of your career and you're an academic surgeon, how do you go about negotiating that within your job? Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's tricky. And I feel very privileged and lucky to be in the situation I'm in now, you know. I, part of the reason I took those three years off during residency was because I saw the writing on the wall. And I knew that when it was time to take my first job, I was going to have to have some sort of professional training experience, like some actual solid devoted time. Mm-hmm. So that when I was negotiating for my first job, I was like, look, I've spent three years of my life devoted to studying both healthcare delivery um, on, the, on the ground, like with Partners in Health. Mm-hmm. And then from a more academic standpoint with that MPA degree. And so really a lot of the reason I spent those three years doing that work was to help when it came time to get my first job. And actually, during the last three months of my fellowship, while I was still a vascular fellow, was when I applied for MSF. Wow. Because it takes you know, some lead time to get into, the, into their volunteer pool. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, I signed up with them. And when I finished my fellowship on June 30th, the first thing I did on July 1st was got on an airplane to go to Alaska, climb Denali. Wow. That took three weeks. And the second thing I did a week after getting back was fly to Republic of Congo for my first MSF assignment. And so, you know, I, I was sort of trying to really prove in a way that this was something that was integral to mm-hmm. what I thought it was going to you know, mean to be a surgeon. And then I got very lucky. As you probably know, um, Rich Schulich, who's our chair here, he, he was one of my mentors at Hopkins. Hmm. So you know, he knew me when I was taking time off. He knew me as a, as a, as a chief resident at Hopkins. So there was a baseline level of understanding. He knew how much it meant to me. And so, you know, that was a huge factor, right? Mm-hmm. Having a, a chair of surgery that um, understood and appreciated and valued that kind of a thing. So mm-hmm. it was a, you know, a combination of things. It required a, a fair amount of professional sacrifice and time. And it required a little bit of luck, a lot of luck, having a chair that... You know, it was at an awesome place like Colorado and 
was recruiting you and, you know. Knew won. your mission from when you were a trainee. Yeah, yeah. It definitely didn't hurt. So what was your first deployment like with MSF? What yeah. kinds of things were you seeing and do you felt like you were prepared as somebody trained by the U.S. surgical residency system to handle those things? Yeah. The, you know, the, the first time I really experienced um, what it's like to be an American surgeon in a lower middle-income country was that you're in Haiti. Okay. So when I did my first assignment with NSF, I, I probably had a little bit more comfort than most first missioners, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. I mean, I can tell you, MSF also tries to ease people in. And MSF is mm-hmm. Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, for those who may not be familiar with the acronyms. But MSF, you know, they try to ease you in. So my first assignment with them was in a pretty calm environment. It was in northeastern Congo Brazzaville. There was a population of about 30,000 refugees that had come over from Democratic Republic of Congo, but it was not an active war zone. And, you know, the conflict had really calmed down about two years prior. And so a lot of what I was doing was sort of what you would expect from basic rural needs surgery. I was doing a lot of C-sections, just delivering mm-hmm. a lot of kids. Did you get experience in that in Haiti? I did. And, 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 and that's probably the, the single greatest deficiency that Doctors Without Borders and other healthcare NGOs face when they're trying to recruit American surgeons these days is that American surgeons do not know how to do a C-section. Hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a huge problem when you're a humanitarian medical organization and you're trying to recruit American surgeons because it's such a crucial operation. It was mm-hmm. the single most common operation that I did wow. on that assignment. So and I, I learned how to do that operation in Haiti with Haitian surgeons. They basically taught me how to do C-sections. Mm-hmm. So, you know, jumping into the first MSF assignment, I was like, from that standpoint, I was ready to go. Yeah, so that was my first assignment with them. Were there things that you wish you had had more preparation in? I mean, obviously you got kind of a forward to your first mission in Haiti, but anything else that you wish that you had done more of, knew more about, scrubbed in in somebody else's room when you were a resident? Yeah, absolutely. Orthopedics was a huge deficiency for me. Uh, How to basically even create a simple cast, Mm. right? How to adequately reduce a fracture. Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, it scared the wits out of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to apply an external fixator, which, you know, it's an important skill. It's not the end-all, be-all of orthopedic surgery in these environments, but it's there are certain, you know, crucial indications where it really does come in handy. But even just basic fracture care, mm-hmm. it, it was all Greek to me. And I wish I had spent some time during my residency rotating with orthopedics. Well, it seems like with the flexibility and training initiatives that happen now where people can do electives in their fourth year of training, that potentially if you're somebody like you who knows from the get-go that you want MSF to be a part of your career, you could do some type of elective in one of those things, I wonder. You know, I actually have no idea. Um, I I would hope that's the case. The, 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 The sense I've gotten, I mean, is certainly not a standard part 
of BCGME approved general surgery residencies. Sure. And you know, in my opinion, that's a that's a huge problem. Um, the the conception in America of what a general surgeon is is very different than the conception of what a general surgeon is in Cuba, in you know Costa Rica, in Nepal, any place you go outside of you know the ivory tower that we live in. If you don't know how to do orthopedics and you don't know how to do a C-section, you're not a general surgeon. Well, I think this is a good segue into, I know you just recently authored a paper talking about some deficiencies in American training and then also your experience in terms of starting a course for American trainees um, or just American general surgeons, I think, to gain some of these slightly outside of the realm of what we as Americans think of general surgery um, with some additional courses in terms of basic procedures within neurosurgery or obstetrics and gynecology. Will you talk a little bit about how that program came to be? Sure. Uh, Did you take that course? I'm trying to remember. I haven't taken it yet. Okay. Are you applying, I hope? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So this is a lot of work that I did along with Ihan Lin, um, who's you know a, a superstar resident and has really helped advance the cause of global surgery here on the campus. It's modeled on a course that I actually took through MSF. So after my first mission, they decided they start to invest in you in, mm-hmm. in your professional development, and, and, and they recognize that there are some deficiencies from the U.S. training system. So they've actually created a training course in Dusseldorf, Germany. Mm-hmm. And they fly you to Dusseldorf. It's a four-day cadaver-based training course where they teach you a lot of the skills that you probably didn't get in your residency training. And so what we've done here at Colorado is essentially try to replicate that course. It's an abbreviated version uh, it's two days long. It's not four days. And it's geared specifically towards senior residents. Um, so people who are training in general surgery and are getting close to the end of their training, and they know that they want to fill in the gaps to make themselves better humanitarian surgeons. So yeah, so the course fills in some deficiencies in terms of orthopedics, Um, You learn how to make a basic cast. You learn how to apply an external fixator. We do hernia repairs without mesh. Mm -hmm. So you learn like the classic Vicini repair. Mm -hmm. Uh, We learn to do some basic low-risk rotational flaps for limb salvage. Okay. How to do a craniotomy without a power saw. Various kinds of amputations, again, using the Digley saw. Basically, every module um, avoids advanced equipment, no power tools, because it's basically trying to teach you how to do specialty care without specialty instruments. Mm -hmm. um, Looking at the underpinnings of the course and why is it important, as you were alluding to, we did some research looking into what exactly are the deficiencies in the U- in not only the U.S., but Western training. Sure. And so what we did was we looked at ACGME case logs for graduating residents, and then we looked at Doctors Without Borders case logs in various projects around the world. Hmm. And we categorized the cases that are being done 
into broad categories of general surgery, orthopedics, OBGYN, and urology. And so we were able to demonstrate, you know, very visually, a huge discrepancy between what American surgeons are being trained to do and what they're going to be asked to do if they find themselves in an MSF project. I think it was something like, don't quote me on the figures, I'm trying to remember, but it was essentially um, 30% OBGYN mm. procedures in MSF projects and I think 25% orthopedics and 5% urology. And so the remainder, a minority of cases were general surgery procedures. Wow. And if, you know, you looked at the experience of residents graduating and essentially OBGYN was zero, mm-hmm. orthopedics was zero, urology was zero. So yeah, it, it actually generated a lot of press. NPR covered it and Well, I think it's very timely as well, because like you were saying, I think that global surgery in terms of itself being a field now Mm -hmm. um, has gained a lot of traction and press with the Lancet Global Commission and everything that came out a couple of years ago. But it is interesting that in my personal experience being abroad, the things that were most needed were things that I have not performed or done or seen as a surgery resident of the U.S. So I, it makes me excited that people are identifying the deficiencies, but it, like it makes me nervous that if this is something that I want to have as part of my career, that maybe I'm not prepared. Well, first of all, I'll say that because you recognize that there are you know things that we we as an, as a American community need to work on. I think you're going to be fine because you're going to you're going to put in the extra effort to fill in those gaps. But I agree with you. You know, it's actually it's it's alarming the first time you got on one of these assignments because the assumption is, oh, I'm the American surgeon, so you must know everything. I'm you know I'm the best trained person here, and then you realize that you're the only person there that doesn't know how to do half of what they're asking you to do. Hmm. You may know how to do a pancreatic resection, right? But you're not going to do a pancreatic resection in Central African Republic. It's mm-hmm. just not going to happen. So, yeah, that specialty training doesn't go so far when you end up in some of these places. So what do you think, then, about American surgical residents spending electives in low- and middle-income countries? Do you feel like that's something that is beneficial to everyone in the equation, not only American surgery residents, but also the places to which they go? Do you think it's something that should be encouraged of residents? Do you think that it helps us in our training? What do you think about taking time, whether that be during your research time or really as an elective, honestly, as a senior resident to go do that? Yeah, well, you put a couple of questions together, so I'll try to unpack it a little bit. I mean, first of all, I think it's, I know for myself, um, but also the feedback I've gotten from some of our Colorado residents who've gone abroad, I think it's one of the most valuable experiences you can have. I think it's valuable at multiple levels. You know, it's valuable on a cultural level. It's, it's valuable on a medical professionalism level to realize that there are highly competent surgeons outside of America. Mm-hmm. You see various kinds of pathologies you would never see here in, here in the States, or the same pathologies that you would see but at a far more advanced level 
And I, I think that it just can open your eyes and your knowledge base in, in incredible ways. So, you know, I, I think that from the standpoint of what we stand to benefit, uh, it's, 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 I think it's huge. Is it for everybody? I don't think it is for everybody, right? And as you know, here at Colorado, we've worked pretty hard on having various opportunities for residents who come through, uh, but not everybody takes advantage of them. And, and I think that's fine. You know, if somebody knows that they want to be a New York plastic surgeon, mm-hmm. and that is all they want to do, and they really don't ever want to go abroad, I, I, I don't think that it should be obligatory for people to go. You know, but, mm-hmm. but I think that for people who have that desire and that and and that idea of what it means to be a doctor and it, and that's part of it for them, I think it can be incredible. Now you asked, you know, what is it like for the host community, mm-hmm. and does it benefit does it benefit them? And I think it depends. I think it's highly dependent on how you structure it, right? It's it's difficult to make it a two-way benefit mm-hmm. in, in all honesty. Um, there are a number of obstacles to making these partnerships two ways. For example, to, to bring a Rwandan resident, for example, to the United States. Mm-hmm. It's challenging on multiple levels. It's challenging to get a visa. It's challenging to figure out you know, how you cover their insurance. Right. It's challenging to figure out if there are medical legal restrictions to them actually touching a patient. And so, it, you know, we've struggled in, in, in some ways to make it a two-way, equally beneficial thing. And that's not unique to Colorado. That's right. unique to all American institutions that have tried to make these partnerships. I think that the benefit, um, we have had residents from Brazil and China come as, for observerships. Mm-hmm. And, and they've still found those beneficial, as I, under, as I understand it helps them with their professional advancement when they go home. They can say that they rotated at an American institution, and that has some value for them. Do, do I wish we could make it more beneficial for everybody? I do. And I know we're looking into some novel ideas. We're looking into some partnerships with other U.S. institutions to try and break down some of these barriers. Mm-hmm. Something you might want, to, uh, might want to talk to Yihan Lin about as well, because she's been involved in some of these discussions we've been having with the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Rush in Chicago. And we're looking at maybe working on a consortium to try and break down some of these barriers. But it's hard. Yeah. What if I'm a resident starting my residency mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about what I want to do in my research time or just in my time outside of the hospital to get myself in a position to negotiate this into my academic career. What should I do during my research time? What should I do during my clinical time to make myself an expert, but certainly somebody who is clearly interested in this topic? Are there research opportunities within Doctors Without Borders? We talked to Yihan about her fellowship um, at Harvard. What things do you think are beneficial for residents trying to make their way into this new field? Yeah. You know, what Yihan did is sort of a, a shining example of how you can get involved. But that's, I would say that unfortunately, those opportunities are few and far between. They're rare, mm-hmm. right? 
the I have some research opportunities that I, I you know I I work with a couple of different residents on various projects. I, I worked with Zach Hartman, who you may remember, on a project analyzing a data set we obtained from Darfur. Hmm. I've written a couple of papers with Yihan out of the Colorado Humanitarian Workshop that we set up and looking at um, sort of training paradigms and evaluating uh, the skill sets that we're imparting. But it's not, um, you know, it's not easy for people to jump right in from the research aspect. Mm-hmm. MSF is very, uh, unfortunately, it, they can be challenging to work with from a research standpoint. They, they do have a research unit called Epicentre, and you know, I've tried to work with them on some projects. Um, there are logistical obstacles to that. Um, yeah, it's not, a, it's, it's not an easy answer. Um, certainly, anytime I do find some kind of a research potential, I like to share it with residents. Mm-hmm. There's a potential project coming up looking at amputations in, in the developing world mm-hmm. and um, trying to quantify the differences in cultural perception to amputation and resistance to amputation and trying to ferret out whether that has to do with social issues mm-hmm. or whether it has to do with more material obstacles like lack of prostheses. Sure. But trying to get at sort of the roots of the Aversion. The the, uh, the hesitance to accept amputation. Um, so that's an example of a project that I'm trying to get going with MSF. It's unclear yet whether it's going to come to fruition. I'm, I'm optimistic, but uh, as you can imagine, you know, trying to deploy a survey in developing countries, it's, it's not it's not entirely easy. Mm-hmm. So, but it does sound like there is at least a huge body of work waiting to be oh, done of for course, whomever of can course, make it happen. Of course, and I think that the, the, the hurdles are real, but for those who are motivated, I mean, I think they're surmountable. It does help to have connections. So I think that, you know, knowing people in MSF obviously is going to help get access to MSF data sets mm-hmm. uh, more than if you're somebody they don't know. Right. So... Yeah, and you know Yihan with her connections, it's just it kind of builds as you get to know people inside of the the global surgical community. It can kind of build on itself. Now to change gears, Dr. Kuyama, you are one of the experts here in physician modified endographs. <laughs> so basically, taking somebody's complicated abdominal aortic aneurysm and then replacing parts of their aorta with different grafts kind of piece by piece. Somebody who can't be fit to a standard endograft is how I would explain this to a medical student, but I'm sure you can do better justice than I can with that. Now, that's something that is incredibly personalized to the patient. It's expensive. It's resource-intensive. And it's just interesting to me that you're at the forefront of developing technologies like that, but yet you practice in an area two or three months out of the year where you're doing C-sections and craniotomies. So on one hand, you're providing such specialized Western medicine, and then on the other hand, you're doing everything 
um, in an MSF OR tent. How do you reconcile that? How do you go from one and then jump back into your PMEG a week after you come back from the Central African Republic? It's hard. It, it, and it's, um, it's uh, discombobulating. It's actually interesting. You guys will hear from Yihan in this episode as well, who has an interest in cardiac surgery, which is also a very resource-intensive field, but also a huge passion for global surgery and being a broad-based general surgeon. Yeah, I'll say that MSF projects don't even have heparin. Wow. So to try and do vascular surgery is very challenging. We don't, don't even have Fogarty catheters. So even the, the raw basics aren't there to do you know, vascular surgery. Now, that being said, on this last assignment I just got back from, there were a lot of bullet wounds. It was pretty active war zone. So I actually did three bypasses, and they worked out okay. But, uh, yeah, so I, I think that vascular surgery is about as technologically advanced as it gets when it comes to American surgery. It's one of those fields where you're going to the trade shows every year and mm -hmm. it's like every year that it's just full of brand new graphs, wires, sheets. It's a very resource intensive field. It's very much, you know, based on cutting edge technology. And, um, yeah, so it's exactly the opposite of what you're doing in a lot of these places where all you have is a wheat lantern retractor and you don't even have a working electric cautery device. But that's part of what, um, that's part of what I love about these MSF assignments, is it grounds me. It brings me back to reality. In some ways, this advanced endovascular stuff, it's, um, I, I love it because it's challenging. I love it, um, I love it for its own, extra, I'd say, extraordinary challenges. Mm -hmm. But it also feels kind of divorced from you know, the rest of what it means to take complete surgical care of a human being. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, I, 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 I love both aspects of my surgical career intensely. I, I think that um, the reward of, you know, delivering a baby by C-section is mm -hmm. um, it's the same it's the same thrill I get as when I finish a physician-modified graft. It's almost like one makes the other special and vice versa. Yeah, it, it, and it really does require a, a whole shift in mentality, you know, when you... First, when you land in, a, in another country and you're expected to do so much or so little, but also coming back. I mean, the, the first day back for me is always very, it, 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 it's hard. I almost f f forget what it's like to use a wire. And the mm -hmm. first case back, you probably don't want to be my first patient back when I come back. Because, you know, even being gone for just six weeks, I feel a little rusty. Because when what you're doing is... It, here requires such a specialized skill set unless you're constantly doing it, mm -hmm. it, it, it you can start to lose that sort of haptic familiarity kind of quickly yeah you know the physician modified graphs uh, i mean that's like a it's whole it's whole own topic sure. right um it's as you probably know we have an investigational device exemption here from the fda which is a very it's a, it's a rare thing, I guess I'll put it that way. There's three of them in the country to do exactly what we're doing with aortic grafts. So we're providing a very specialized service for patients with very complicated aortic aneurysms. 
we've got people flying here from all around the country, patients from Alaska, Wisconsin, New Mexico, and they come from all over for this you know, specialized surgical treatment. And um, it makes up a big component of my career. I've got one of these physician-modified graphs tomorrow. And as you know, when you came in, you saw me planning it. It takes me a couple hours to plan the case. And it takes an entire day to do the case. But when it goes well, uh, it's amazing. You can fix a thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysm, which is one of the most complicated things that we treat as vascular surgeons. And you can do it all through two needle pokes in the groin. So, you know, it's just an example of, you know, the dramatic changes that technology can make in how we deliver surgical care. So that's really, for, you know, for me, that's the leading edge, right? Mm -hmm. And then going abroad with MSF, it's like focusing on the trailing edge, on who's being left behind in basic access to things like appendectomies, mm -hmm. like, like C-sections. Um, and they both have their, their own rewards. Well, to close out, just to ask you any questions, you just returned from a six-week deployment to the Central African Republic. And I'm wondering if there are any specific experiences that you had, obviously not giving, you know, too much HIPAA-type detail, but yeah. are there any experiences that you had that either illustrated this course or these skills that I think other people should know that want to do these missions, that this is important, that was illustrated by people that you saw while you were there, or any other experiences that you may have had that were meaningful? Yeah, no, Absolutely. So I haven't talked to a lot of people since getting back about the assignment. Uh, it was really hard. And um, everybody that's asked me about it, I, they've asked because they care. You know, they care. And, and they want to know and they want to understand. Um, but it's hard to take such a difficult experience and explain it in a way that I think can really convey what it was like, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, this most recent assignment was particularly challenging because of insecurity. Uh, we were basically in an active war zone. Mm -hmm. And we actually had to shut down early. Was that because of the stabbing? I think I read about this. No. Nobody was stabbed, um, but we had armed people break into our compound. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't feel, a, I don't really feel the need to go into all the details per se, you mm -hmm. know, but, you know, needless to say, I, mean, I thought I was going to die. Um, we all thought we were, we were going to die. Um, Nobody did die. Everybody survived. But if something had gone poorly, um, if somebody had reacted badly, then, you know, the story could be quite different. And um, so it really, it, it, it really hit home to me, you know, that there has to be a passion you know, mm -hmm. it has to really mean something if you're going to put yourself into certain environments. I don't regret going at all. If anything, I regret having had to leave. And mm -hmm. if I could go back tomorrow, I would go. 
Obviously, Dr. Schulich would be unhappy if I were to do that <laughs> since I've already used up my time away. But um, it's traumatic to be forced to leave your patients and a population in need behind because of insecurity. You know, from a, a broader standpoint, as you probably know, there's been a lot of discussion in the media and in global health circles about attacks on healthcare workers and attacks on hospitals. It's been happening all over in Syria, in Yemen, in Central African Republic. And, you know, for me, I was always, you know, concerned and interested in it as a as somebody who's been in the field. But this is the first time that I was actually on the end of the gun, right? And um, so it has a whole new personal meaning for me. Um, and I don't tell this story to scare people off because I, I don't think it should, right? I think that um, I think that it's something that um, I mean, it's something that I'll that I'll carry with me, mm-hmm. you know, going forward, and um, it it makes it makes the mission all the more important to me. Um, yeah, so I hope that, um, I hope that I, and I know, and I know because I, I'm part of the surgical residency search committee and interviewing residents. I know that there's a whole generation and hopefully some of the people listening to this are part of that. There's a whole generation of upcoming surgical trainees that share the same passion that I do for it. And that excites me, you know, it's, it's, um, the, the, the struggle is real, you know, the, the work is, the, it's the real deal, but, um, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to mentor the next generation and help, help them find their own way. Well, thank you so much for, interviewing with us today and for all of the work that you do here and abroad advancing endographs and advancing (laughs) general surgeons being able to do a c-section i think it's truly a remarkable practice and thank you for sharing your story with us well thanks for interviewing me i appreciate it thank both Yihan and Dr. Kuyama for their interviews for the podcast today. If you guys have any additional questions, um, whether it's about global surgery, surgical residency, being a medical student, interested in surgery, anything that you think that we could help you guys answer, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at rmspodcast at outlook.com. That's again, rmspodcast at outlook.com, and you guys will still send you a button if you ask us a question. Mm -hmm. Just include your address so that we can mail that to you. Next week, we'll be doing an episode on Denver Health, which is our county hospital and safety net hospital experience. We And a level one trauma center. And we had some very interesting discussions with uh, several of our faculty over there, including Dr. Ernest Moore, who's my research PI and also very much a legend in trauma surgery. So check us out for our Denver Health Trauma slash Safety Net Hospital episode. All right. Thanks, guys. See you next week.